All right, so uh, um, we're on the topic, um, death, dying, heaven, and hell. If you notice, it's death, dying, hell, and heaven. And the reason why is because I don't want people to leave the class discouraged when the class is all over at the end of the semester. So I put hell before heaven so we can get really excited um, afterwards. But uh, we are talking about um, hell um, even um, tonight or this morning. And um, as we're talking about hell, um, it's a, a hot topic um, such yeah, literally. <laughs> Such a hot topic that uh, you don't see very many pastors even preach on it, even, even talk about it. Um, I even like show of hands, you don't have to do it, but you know, how many pers- people have heard a sermon on hell and, um, and those things. And uh, so it's a, it's a topic that, that people get really passionate about. Um, and there's multiple reasons why we get really passionate about it. Uh, one of the reasons why we get really passionate about it is because it, you start wondering, you know, is, is this defining who God is? What is God doing? What's taking place um, in those things? The other reason we get really passionate about it is because we all have loved ones um, that uh, are rejecting God, rejecting Christ. So I don't want nothing to do with Christ. And, um, and then they're passing away. So when we start talking about hell, those things start coming back of What's taking place in their, you know, eternity? What's going to happen if, you know, my children don't accept Christ? You know, just these kind of things. Uh, the topic of hell is, um, is I, I'll just be right honest with you, it's a, it's a hurtful topic. It's a painful, it's a painful um, topic. Um, but it is a topic that uh, Jesus um, mentioned more times um, than anybody else in the entire Bible. So it's a topic that is mentioned in the Word. Therefore, it's a topic that needs to be studied, that needs to be understood, that needs to be known. Now, um, when we do bring up hell, we all have our ideas, and, um, and I really want to encourage you, because this is round two on hell, I really want to encourage you that if you did not, if we're not here last week, to go listen to last week's <laughs> service, um, because uh, this is coming off of what we talked about last week. Um, and I, just to, to give you a really fast um, recap, is that we get our... Um, picture of hell in our mind of the single words that are spoken about it. Um, We get um, our understanding of hell by a word like fire. And as we look at fire, you know, that whole understanding comes in, well, this is what hell looks like, fire, and then it just, you know, then it goes from there. Um, You know, we we look at bottomless pit. Uh, We look at the words torment. We look at the the, um, the words agony, we look at the words shame and contempt, and you know, all these things, we really define our hell by the terms that are spoken in hell, and then we paint our picture of what hell looks like, paint our picture of what hell looks like um, in our mind. Um, last week, uh, in, if even if just bring this up, um, last week we talked about, okay, are all these words extremely literal? Um, an instant reaction to many churchgoers is, Absolutely, it's literal. It has to be literal. You know, the Word of God is, is completely, you know, everything is extremely literal. Um, I'm just going to sum up the argument that we talked about yesterday, and again, I want you to think about um, uh, what was, I want you to listen to the sermon if you were not here last week or listen to this topic if you weren't here last week, just to, to see what the arguments are that are taking place. But as you, as you think um, literal on absolutely um, everything and then paint the picture um, in your mind, is that the exact picture you're going to get of hell? The argument um, last week was afterlife 
is a life beyond our mind that we really cannot grab a hold of and say, this is exactly how it's going to be. This is exactly what it's going to look like. We cannot look at hell and say, this is exactly what is going to happen because we don't understand anything else except life. As well as we cannot look at heaven and say, this is exactly what it is going to look like. This is the exact description of what's going to take place in heaven. Because as he is describing heaven, um, he is saying things that, um, you know, maybe you won't accept this, but he's saying things that are beyond our mind. And the reason why I would say that he's saying things that are beyond our mind is because if heaven is limited to our mind on earth, it's just not going to be as glorious (laughs) as it is probably being created for. Jesus created the earth in six days, and he's been creating heaven for 2,000 years. Uh, What's the difference? Six days, 2,000 years. There's a lot more stock going into heaven (laughs) uh, as we're looking at this. So can we completely understand that concept? We get passages in the Bible that explain the concept, but can we completely grab a hold and say, this is exactly what heaven is going to look like? Or can we go and say, this is exactly what hell is going to look like? My argument is that we have to relax (laughs) because we cannot get the exact specific picture of hell or the exact specific picture um, of heaven. We get taste of it in Scripture, and we can feed off of it in Scripture, but heaven will be better than we think it's going to be, and hell will be worse than we think it's, it's going to be. I, that's just, that's just um, in my mind. So just to, to bring up the topic, number one in our notes, this is my last statement after we talked about um, um, whether things are metaphorical or whether things are completely literal in regards to hell. Um, this is what I believe, and you can completely disagree with me. Um, this class is only in a sense of, I just want people to think. Um, completely, entirely disagree with me, that is completely okay. <laughs> in other words, I'm just going to pull out Scripture to try to say, what do, is my interpretation of the Bible of what's taken place, and give you my interpretation, and your interpretation is different? That's completely fine. This is mine. I believe that the images of hell are metaphorical, metaphorically worse than the literal. <laughs> we got pretty ugly last week. Um, and uh, as we got pretty ugly last week, it's like, whoa, hell doesn't look very good when you talk literal. Um, it doesn't look very good when you talk literal. But I think there's something that's going to go on even um, emotionally, um, um, powerfully, painfully, that is going to be even worse than we like, I never even understood this, this entire concept. Um, John Calvin um, says it this way. Um, and I just want to tell you that if I come up with a view, I never stand on a view by myself. <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun. I believe that. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not giving you anything that's like, hey, this is Mike Dedera's view. Um, this is, I'm studying a whole bunch of different people. One person I've studied is Martin, or Jonathan Edwards, and I love Jonathan Edwards with a passion. I studied John Calvin. I love him with a passion. John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards disagree. So where did Mike Dodera go? <laughs> you know, it's just through my, through my study, you know, as we're looking at it. But here's John Calvin's comment. We have stated formally that the term fire represents metaphorically that dreadful punishment which our senses are unable to comprehend. It is therefore unnecessary to enter into subtle inquiries as the sophists do into the matters of the form of this fire. For there would be equally good reason to inquire about the worm. Is the worm literal? Is the worm not literal? Is the fire literal? Is the fire not literal? Now, if you were one that says the fire is absolutely literal, um, 
That's okay. I think probably the most literal person that has ever studied the Word of God is John Calvin. <laughs> John Calvin put 14 hours a day, and he would say the Bible is as literal as he possibly can, but he says, well, there's something beyond when it comes to hell. So that's just his statement. I want to make sure that his statement is going. So as we're looking at this um, concept um, of, of hell, um, and we're going to kind of get us into the caverns, because remember that we um, can't conceive it. That's my opinion. It might not be yours. My opinion is that we cannot conceive it. Well, there is stories that we can look into that give us a vivid picture of what could be taking place or what not could be taking place. How are we going to hold those stories? Loosely, <laughs> relaxed. Try to say, what's going on here? What is taking place here? And what is happening here? Um, one thing about the literal view, why I would struggle with the extreme literal view of fire on every single nerve that is taking place in your bowels, in your stomach, and in your face, in your eyes, in this, this horrific hellfire that we can understand with no smoke. Um, one thing that I struggle with that view is that it's such a far separation from a cross. Um, if you look at everything, should be looked at through the, the lens of a cross. And when you look at the lens of the cross, in my mind, it could not be yours, but it just seems like there's a far separation of a cross. Um, the other thing, it, it seems like there's a, a far separation um, of, of sin. Um, in other words, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay, you're going to pay, you're going to pay, you're going to pay, and this is going to be so horrifical that you can't even think about what took place on earth and the sin that you're even being punished for. Remember the concept of smoke? Smoke's designed to put us to sleep so we don't have to have the fire in our skin because it's so horrific. How much are you thinking about your judgment of sin that has taken place in this world if every single one of our nerves are being inflamed with hellfire. I think um, sin, looking at the topic of sin, we almost even have to look at hell through the topic of sin. I think we have to look at hell through the topic of, of the cross. Um, so what I want to do um, today is I want to stay on one story that gives us um, a large description of of hell. It's a, it's, a, it's a parable, a story that is explained by Jesus that shows, you know, what's taking place in hell. And what I want to do is I want to look at it through the concepts of sin and, um, and as we continue to um, feed, feed off of that story. So I just want to look at the story first. The story is found in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. And I just want to read you the story. And then after we read the story, the whole lesson is going to be based upon this story because you're going to get some descriptions that are off of this, that are off of this story. Luke 16.9, and you, have it, you should have a piece of paper there, and you have all your passages of Scripture there as well because I don't want any mystery come up and go. So all of your passages are there we can feed off of. Now, there was a rich man, and habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in a splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were fallen from the rich man's table. Beside, even the dogs were coming and licking the sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away to the angels of Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being tormented, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, 
and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between you, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn, may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if, I, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if somebody raises from the dead. So in this class, we're trying to not describe hell. We're trying to feel hell. <laughs> a lot of people go, let me give you the descriptions of it. Well, that's not the way I teach. <laughs> the reason why is because when I study the Bible, I want to feel Christ's love. I want to feel what heaven looks like. I want to feel what heaven looks like or hell looks like. So that's what we're going to do. We're trying to get the feeling. Are we going to be able to grab it? No, we're not. But we're going to look at it through the context of sin to try to get this feeling. So let's just look at sin. The word sin. Number two, sin separates you from God, grows in you, enslaves you, destroys you, haunts you, and oppresses you. We know that. We understand the concept of sin. Now, one thing about this is that we get lots of um, words that describe hell. Some of those words are cast out. Some of those words are fire. Some of those words are thirst. Some of the words are agony. Some of the words torment. Some of the words are shame and everlasting contempt, thrown into darkness. Those things are often described as hell. Um, I often think that why are we judged? We are judged in regard of what? Regard of our sin. And then there's these words that are described that's like, well, this sounds, you know, exactly like some sin that um, is even taken place. So I just wanted to put that verse there so you guys can look at it. Sin separates you from God, cast out, grows in you, fire. How does sin grow in you? We're going to talk about that. Fire enslaves you thirst, destroys you agony, haunts you torment, and oppresses you shame and everlasting contempt. I'm not saying that those words are completely and exactly linked. I just want you to say, oh, sin has something that's taking place that's going on. All right, let's look at the, the passage that we're looking into. Just hang on to that verse, and we'll just kind of be playing with it as we go through. Number three, now, you can disagree with me all you want, <laughs> okay? This is not, it's not an argument. It's nothing. You can disagree with me all you want. Hell is your freely chosen identity based upon something other than God going on forever and ever. I want to look at this passage. If you get a whole story that is explained um, about the caverns of hell and talking about hell, um, one person's in hell, one person's not. Is he going to say how a person got there? Or is he going to say how or not? Or what is he just going to do? 
Well, look at Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. There was something that this person, if this person went to hell, because it doesn't say this person accepted Christ and this person didn't accept Christ. It's interesting that it talks about there is a rich man. Did this rich man know God? Did this rich man not know God? Um, the scholars believe, you know, I, don't, I think that this rich man understood who God was. But what was he doing with his riches? Clothed in purple? What's purple? Clothed in complete royalty? This is mine. This is what I've got. This is the strength of me as an individual. And what am I doing? I'm feasting uh, so, uh, so, sumptuously, whatever that word is, every single day. Uh, what's building this person's identity? What is this person's Lord? What is this person's king? What is this person hanging on to that is his highest good and his ultimate Lord? Is the greatest sin in the world hanging on to something else besides God? Is the greatest sin in the world is that I have something that is so strong and so powerful that I am completely and entirely ruined if it does not exist. And it is not God. I have a king, I have a Lord, and this sin is what, or this is the item that, is, that I'm going to hold on to. Um, it could be something good. It could be a family. What do you get words from Christ that says, unless you hate your father and mother, and despise your children. Those are aggressive words. Why would you get those aggressive words by Christ? And you need to hate your father and mother if you're going to come after me, because you don't even understand me. If you have a different king, a different lord, if you have an ultimate good, king of kings, lord of lords in your life, you are, could be, um, what? You could be um, in trouble. Riches is the ultimate thing that created his identity. It created his value. Um, it took something and said, this is absolutely it, and nobody is going to threaten it. I can't live without it. Maybe I'm just talking, thinking about this. I, he couldn't live without it. It gives him meaning. It gives him value. It gives him self-worth. It gives him something to live for. And if his riches were taken away, it'd be like, just throw me off of a bridge because I am sick of my rich. Uh, if I've lost all my wealth, then I have absolutely nothing. What was Paul's statement as he's walking through this world? He's like, if I have God, I have everything. If I lose the whole world, it's okay. I still have God. Is this rich man saying, I have all this wealth, and if you take this wealth away from me, um, I have nothing left to exist. I might as well kill myself because this is my identity. This is who I am. If you look at this parable, everybody has a name. Everybody has a name. You have Abraham, has a name. You have Lazarus, who's a poor man. But does a rich man have his, a name? What was his name? What was his identity? Was his identity something else? Did he lose his identity when he was cast into hell? Was his identity something else besides God? Was he even exist anymore in the sense that he doesn't have a name? In regards to that, just something to think about. We're all threatened with this money, career, talents, looks, relationship, children, power, approval from others, control, lust, self-gratification. If there is anything that is providing more significance than God, it is, a, it is 
a threat on this person. What kind of threat is it? Number four, your freely chosen identity, which is sin, will create a fire of evil while you live on this earth. Um, does sin create um, a fire? Does sin burn inside of you so hot that you start destroying as a result from it? just want to look at the passage. Continue to move down the passage. Luke 16, 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. If this poor man was at his gate, was he seen every day by the rich man? He was seen every day by the rich man, covered with sores. It is now describing this poor man that is by the gate, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. This is what the rich man is looking at every single day as he walks by his gate. Moreover, even the dogs came to lick his sores. They're very descriptive of what this poor man uh, looked like. Um, the poor man was not asking to dine with the rich man. The poor man was not asking to be part of the rich man's life. The poor man was asking to do what? To survive. The poor man was asking to survive. And as the rich man walked past the poor man, he was holding on something so strong that it's like whether he survives or not, you know, that has nothing to do with me or not. How do you know the rich man was, or the poor man was asking to survive? Uh, when um, I ever talk about my dog, you guys think that I have a, a cute, cuddly-looking dog? The answer is yes, I do. And you guys live in America. So when you think of a dog, what do you think of? You think of a dog that is a pet, somebody that you love. If you go to Sierra Leone, you no longer think of a dog that way because dogs are like rats. Uh, dogs bite you in Sierra Leone. If you get close to a dog, ooh, I mean, you could be um, rabies instantly. None of them are vaccinated, none of them are anything. They are rats that pick up anything dead they can find on the street, any garbage they can find. They're not pets that you invite into their home. When the Bible talks about a dog... It's not talking about a pet that you invite into your home. I know we're in America, but we need to get that out of our mind. 1 Kings 14, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. When you mention dog, it's not a good sign. 1 Kings 21, 19, the place where the dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood as well. 1 Kings 21, 23, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. Every time dog is mentioned in Scripture, a dog is not good. This rich man is walking past this poor man. And when the dogs are on him, he knows he needs to do something. But does he have another king? Does he have another lord? Does he have another ruler? Now, there's a passage, and I was going to put this passage in there, but I didn't uh, put the passage in there. Matthew 25. Um, um, I can quote it if I could just remember the first, the first word. When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was a prison, did you come visit me? Everything you do for me, you have done for your Father. But then it turns on the flip side. Was I naked and you didn't clothe me? Was I a prison and you did not come to visit me? Was I sick and you rejected me? And then it says massive words. Anyone who um, was, anyone who did not do it, depart from me, cursed ones, into everlasting fire, 
prepared for the devil and his angels because he refused to do it. That's a pretty rough, aggressive statement. And that's an aggressive statement that when we talk about hell, that's a verse that we go to. Cursed ones into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because all this was taking place, and you had another king, another lord that's just kind of, oh, just push it back as he continues to walk. Um, this has to grow in somebody. What I mean by grow in somebody is that rich man had to grow calloused. He had to grow passionate. He had to grow strong with what was his king, with what was his lord. To be able to look at somebody that is going to die, he has to be holding on to something else, meditating on something else, consumed with something else to be able to come to that sickness. But what was he doing? He did it, and he was callous to it, walked in. James 1, 14, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away. Was this rich man dragged away? Dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is not something that just occurred instantly. This is something that the rich man was probably handed over to. And when the rich man, this object of riches was handed over to him, it was his king, it was his lord, and in the process, he rejected, 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 and it grew a flame inside of him that was so hot that he can be able to shut the minds out of the person at the door. Romans 1, 21 talks about somebody that is being handed over to something. Let's look at the verse. For even though they knew God, I'm arguing that the rich man knew God. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. They took something and they worshiped something other than God. They made it their ultimate good. They made it their ultimate king. They made it their ultimate Lord. But what happens to the person that has done that? For this reason, God did what? Gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural functions for that which was unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned their natural functions of the woman and burned in their desires towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a deprived mind to do those things which are not proper. What takes place, they are now filled with unrighteousness. They are filled with wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient with parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Why? Because were they handed over to their ultimate Lord? Handed over to their ultimate sin? And God says, okay, fine, it's enough. Take your king, take your Lord. Because it says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things Things are worthy of death. They do not only do the same, but also give heartily approval to those who practice them. You see, when you start talking about sin, and, and you've been putting sin in perspective, because sin does what? Separates you from God. What takes place in hell? You're then separated from God. Does sin have an issue? 
Uh, we all have uh, a King of Kings and a Lord of Lords of our life. And as we have as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we have a God that has a lot of grace. And what God does with a lot of grace is that he will threaten that king. He will threaten that Lord if it's not him. And he will go after it with conviction, with passion, and you're going to have to make a decision. Well, God, God, go, go. No, don't threaten this, don't threaten this. And to embrace it and hang on to it. And if you're going to hang on to it, what's going to take place? According to Romans, there's going to be a passion, a burning fire that's going to make you eviler and eviler as time is going to go. Um, Here's a prayer that I have in my... uh, uh, prayer journal. God, if you give me a choice to live in pleasure with my sin, please burn away with trial and suffering. Please give me sanctified affliction, but beg you not to give me my sin. Because what sin is going to do is sin is going to be probably the sharpest sword that is going to destroy us for absolutely eternity. What's that going to look like? Remember, it's going to be hard to explain, but personally, I believe it's going to be ugly. Number five, your obsession with your chosen identity will create a cosmic fire of evil when you're punished for it. Um, We all know that you will be punished in hell. And you know that God's wrath is going to be unleashed in hell. We We understand that to take place. But as we're looking at God's wrath and God's punishment, we often get this picture that God throws you into hell slams the door, and everybody in hell is screaming at the top of their lungs, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, God save me, God save me, God save me, God rescue me, help me, help me, give me mercy, give me mercy, give me mercy. Let's go back to the story in Luke. In Hades, this is a rich man, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, that means he's struggling, in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom, He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. One thing that you do not see in that passage is you do not see him asking to get out. Do you see him asking to get out? You also see him doing what? Commanding orders. He ordered Lazarus when he was walking by him, he is still commanding orders. Abraham, you know, bah humbug. Abraham, I know you're a big dog. You tell Lazarus, because this doesn't feel good. You tell Lazarus to cool my tongue. Still demanding orders. There's still a, a passion inside of him in a sense that he is begging for mercy under selfish reasons, not because of what he's done to Lazarus. Do you see a confession that takes place in Lazarus? There's no necessary, I don't see any confession that takes place. What he does is he is angry, I am in agony, I didn't have enough information, which we're going to see earlier, later, I didn't have enough information, this is not the place, um, um, this is the place of where I am, comfort me in this place, but I'm still not asking to get out, insinuating that he knows completely why he is in there. C.S. Lewis says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And uh, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that when we are handed over to our sin, there is a fire that is built in us that has absolutely no grace behind it, no conviction behind it, 
no forgiveness behind it, no love behind it whatsoever. And as a result, that fire burns so hot towards the one that is punishing us that you despise the one that is punishing us and runs from the one that is punishing us even at the same time and even curses the one that is punishing us at the same time. The doors of hell are locked from the inside in a statement that says, this is where I am going to be and I am not going to accept you under any circumstances. I'm going to despise you for the rest of your life because there's no grace that can make him spit out the tongue that he wants acceptance or he even wants forgiveness. He has been given his own sin that just completely annihilates him, burns him, and then is punished for it and despises the person who could have saved him, but now despising the person that is punishing him. Revelation 16:8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Now, we're talking about judgment that's taking place here in Revelation. The fourth bowl is ugly. It is not good. Men were scorched with fierce heat. Now, if you're scorched with fierce heat, what do you do? You cry out for what? Mercy. But, what does it say? They blaspheme the name of God. They were scorched with heat, Turn and blaspheme the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not. We refuse to plant. They are making the decision, I will not repent under this fierce heat that I am under. So as to give him glory, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne and the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues together because of pain. When you gnaw your tongues together because of pain, what do you do? You cry for mercy, but in hell there is no more mercy. Therefore they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent. You hear fire, you hear torment, you hear ugly to the extreme that you are wanting something, not grabbing something, tortured under something, despising the one that could have saved you but is not saving you is paying for it and there is an evil that burns hotter and hotter and hotter and deeper and deeper and deeper. Revelation 9, 6, during those days men will seek death but they will not find it. They will know um, they will long to die but death will elude them. What are these people asking for? They're asking for just kill me, just annihilate me, just say I, I don't want to be anymore. But in the process of saying, I don't want to be anymore, continue to read the passage because this is talking about the judgments of the trumpets. The rest of mankind were then killed by these plagues, still refused to repent. So they were slaughtered by the plagues that were coming through, but they still would not choose to worship God. They would still not re-choose his forgiveness. They would still not re-choose his help of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. What are they doing? They refused to stop worshiping what they did before. Idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, things that could take place in this earth, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. They refused to do so. You see what's taking place inside of somebody? It feels really, really sick um, in a sense. That if we grab a whole nother Lord, a whole nother King, we despise God if God threatens us. We despise Him if He punishes us. 
See, God is so radical, so radical, that he comes in the death of his cross and his resurrection to literally shock love into us, to say, I want to be the radical person that is in your life. I want to be the top one that is in your life. I want you to be the center, the foundation of everything you are. And as I'm the center, the foundation of everything you are, you're going to see nothing but life. Choose something else, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly. Martin Luther says this, Nature is far more adept at fleeing from God when he is angry than when he punishes. So to say nothing of turning to him and calling upon him, it always seeks help from other sources. Sound familiar? That's what takes place in life. I don't want to turn to God. Give me another source. Alcohol, drugs. Let my sin continue to grow and grow and grow because once you start one, it keeps going and going and going and evil and evil comes more, um, more on you. It will have nothing of this. God cannot, hide, uh, God cannot abide him. Therefore, human nature forever flees, and yet it does not escape because thus remain condemned in wrath, sin, death, and hell. Here you can glimpse a portion of what hell looks like. They, free, they flee from it, but it will never escape it. And yet they do not cry to God and implore him. For Isaiah says, He who believes will not be in haste. Now would be a time of believing. Won't be in haste. But you're not going to be believing um, um, on, the other, on the other side. So just in summary of those pieces. In hell, the rich man is being judged by his sin, for his sin, because of his sin, since he refused to accept salvation from his sin. The best ways to de- describe, I'm just trying to get a picture of it, and this is just a small taste. Probably some of the best ways to describe the emotional torment in hell would be um, alcoholism. It takes place in alcoholism. You, you hang on to it, you swallow it, and as you're swallowing it, it's doing things to your mind, and you are starting to ruin your wife. You're starting to ruin your family. You're starting to ruin your job. You're st- and the more that you start to ruin, the more numb you need to come. And the more numb you need to come, you've got to increase the level of alcoholism. But in the process of increasing the level of alcoholism, you see the increased pain that takes place, the increased destruction, the increased casting out, the, compl- the increased ruining, but you just can't stop. <laughs> you can't stop. You can't turn. You can't release. It has to be, it has to be, a, and it's just a horrific thing that has a hold of you, and as it has a hold of you, destroy, 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 but I can't get out, can't get out, can't get out, can't get out, can't get out. I think that's kind of even a picture, just a small taste of what hell could be. Everything that you love the most, you ruin because you love something more than the ultimate God who loved the most that would give them, that would give them give them life. Hell is a burning anger so deep, but even more you try to get out, the anger increases as you're trying to get out of the process. Charles Spurgeon says the drunkard here will have all drunks, uh, drunkards thirst, will have all the drunkards thirst there without the means to gratify it. The swearer here will become in yet more ripe and proficient blasphemer. Death does not change but fixes character. It purifies it. Spurgeon also explains, hell is sin fully developed, a man's own soul permitted to go to the extreme limits without that which it carries out the mitigated form, and so, becoming like a furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, tormenting itself beyond all power and imagination. 
Luke 16.24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. He is holding on to his sin, and he wants relief, and he's demanding that Lazarus give him that relief, but yet he is not asking to get out. A torment that comes, a torment that burns. Number, stand, uh, number seven, I want to give you guys time to talk, so I need to probably hustle a little faster. Understanding that Christ did not come to earth to bring judgment for sin, but to bear judgment for sin is the only way a person will have the desire to get rid of their sin. You've got to put hell in the context of the gospel, or you wouldn't even understand the context of the gospel. Gospel, again, wants to literally shock love into you. The gospel, again, wants to say, this is your king, this is your lord, this is your ruler, this is your ultimate good. Hear the words, Christ came, Christ died, Christ lives, arose to live with you. Is that a statement that says, that is going to cast out every sin in my life? And I'm going to make that not cast out every sin in my life, but cast out every ultimate in my life. And I want to make that now the ultimate. At the very end of the passage, uh, we see um, um, a response that is kind of insinuating of what the gospel does. Look at Luke 16. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. What did Moses and the prophets talk about? Moses and the prophets talked about Jesus. And you see that all the way through the passages. This is what the Psalms wrote about. This is what Moses talked about. This is what the prophets talked about. They're pointing to Jesus. Let them hear that. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. If you can just give me a bold miracle, it will shock them into salvation. If I can just see a miracle of somebody rising from the dead, it will shock them into salvation. That's what they're asking here. They're not asking for Christ. They're asking for a bold miracle. What was Christ's argument? You only follow me because of what my miracles, your, my miracles will not save you. My cross and resurrection will save you. This guy said, just give me a bold miracle and we'll be able to see it. But this is what he says in response. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if they have a bold miracle. Was the Israelites persuaded when the sea opened up? (laughs) They were not persuaded. There is no bold miracle out there that you will say, that is going to be my king and my Lord and my God if you see it. But there is a gospel that is out there that if you see what has taken place, it is a transforming gospel that says, this is what I want beyond anything else. This is what I want beyond anything else. The fear of hell will never change a person's heart. And the reason why the fear of hell will never change a person's heart is because if you are afraid of going to hell and accept Christ just because you're afraid to go in hell, you would say, I'm going to do this and I'm still going to carry my ultimate good. And God will confront you, and when he does confront you, what's going to take place? You're going to cast him out and go your direction, or you're going to turn around and say, you know what, God? I need to embrace you 
and go your direction. Stand upon the rock, which is the solid, which is the solid ground. I'm going to let you guys talk because <laughs> I talked a lot. Um, is this the extreme um, explanation of hell? Um, there is a lot of fire. There is a lot of torment. There's a lot of agony that goes beyond our mind that I would say is worse than possible, even the literal. But in the process of receiving that agony, you will, according to this passage, I believe, reject the one that you need the most, and you'll do it for an eternity as those sins are on your shoulders. Rich, or anybody? Yes, Doug. When you see him asking to have somebody go and speak to his brothers, is he showing compassion? That's a good question. Is he showing compassion? Um, I would say that um, I'm saying that he would be selfish. Um, he, did not, um, um, he did not ask um, for Lazarus to be um, saved. He asked for his brother. I, I'm just going to say, I don't believe hell changes you at all. That's what, I, that's what I think. Hell does not change you at all and does not make you a better person. It makes you more of a selfish person. He was connected to his brothers. He was not connected to Lazarus. He sees what's taking place. He says, make sure my brothers do not go to the place where I am at because where I'm at, it is destruction. It is something that I do not like, but something that I will continue to reject in that process. Go save them. And so I would not say it's compassion. I would say that's selfishness is what I would say in regards to that passage, but very good question. Um, I don't think that we get anything with grace being entirely removed, um, we don't become a better person in hell. I believe as time goes on in hell, we get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And hell does not change somebody. Hell does not purify somebody. Hell does not set, make somebody good. They were bad, but now they're in hell, and now they're good. I would not use that passage to say he's good now. I had a friend that was was an alcoholic. Okay. And well, I was too. I drank a lot too. We all did on the line cruise. But uh, uh, anyway, a little louder. We want to hear you. I was too, anyway. We all drank a lot on the line cruise, but Brad really had a problem, this one friend of mine, and uh, he quit. I know two things. If you're in that, if you in that circle and you run that circle, you'll have a lot of friends in that circle. But once you deny that circle and you quit drinking, you don't have those friends anymore. They turn their back on you, okay? So the deeper you get into a sin, the harder it is to get out. And uh, when he got out, he was going to AA, and I still drank beer, and they told him to get away from me. But Brad told him that that's the only guy that I know in that whole circle that didn't turn his back on me. Mm -hmm. So when you try to get out of that circle, you're going to lose those friends. You're going to have to choose a different life. And the life you want to choose better be here. Mm -hmm. As we talked about rejection this morning, yes, absolutely. Rejection comes from, like what you're saying, you had your friends, 
could have lost your family, but now you have your friends, but then I stopped that, now I lose my friends, and I lost my family, and now I'm all by myself with my sin just consistently gnawing on me. Yeah, Mike, um, when uh, Jesus tells them that, or, or when Abraham tells them that even if uh, they saw someone rise from the dead, they wouldn't repent, um, I, didn't, I didn't really hear you emphasize that, um, well, that maybe Christ was telling them that he was going to rise from the dead and that wasn't going to help them. Is that, is that parallel? Is that a direct parallel there? Um, I don't think he's emphasizing that. That's not would be my, my parallel. Um, my parallel or my, the point that I believe that that passage is proclaiming is that you're, um, um, the thing that you're asking for has been done and you don't want it. And um, because I think at the top of that, he's like, you know, let's see a, a miracle. If you can just, you know, let me rise and, and go back. If you can just tell them, I didn't receive enough information, but if you would give them enough information. Um, I think what, what um, Jesus is saying in that passage is that information um, is not what's going to um, save you. The act of Christ rising from the dead is. It is a strong insinuation. I mean, it's completely built in. Is that Christ is going to be the center that's going to drive them, going to drive them out? But I, I wouldn't go with. Uh, um, um, I mean, that's just me. I mean, you know, we can look at that passage. A lot of different. You can preach for about ten hours on this passage. <laughs> just, I mean, and just kind of go on it and feed it and feed it and feed it. That's my interpretation of it. Is that I'm going to bring you back to the gospel. You're not even asking for the gospel. You know, you're asking for something else, even other than the gospel, because the gospel is going to be there. It's going to be powerful for you. That would be my interpretation. He had compassion um, for his for his brothers, um, and but yes, he did. He has compassion for his brothers. Um, I have. Um, um, See if I can say things wrong. I uh, love my wife, and I have compassion for my wife, and my love for my wife gives me a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, just in a sense that I am blessed in that relationship. Um, we are connected, but why? We offer each other love back and forth. What about the person that's sitting at the street? You know, there is some selfishness that even comes in their best, strongest relationships as they walk together. A selfishness, I believe, is, is whole because it's our relationship with Christ. There's some selfishness in Christ. I want to be saved from my sin. Help me. You know, there's that piece of that, that selfishness that is peace there. But for him to say, oh, you go get my brothers and not say I'm sorry um, about the people I've rejected, that just, just doesn't say a lot of compassion in my mind. But that's me. All right, Doug. They bring up that type of an argument. Why don't you do? Why don't you do this for somebody else? It always goes back to, okay, if if you'll do that, then why don't you do this for me? Or they, in other words, they're looking for an advantage somehow. You're looking for. That's advantage. been my experience. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Wes, this might be kind of a controversial question, but... We don't some, mind controversial <laughs> questions. <laughs> some, some people teach and believe that you can pray someone out of hell. 
Do you think there's any indication in the Bible whatsoever that once you're in hell, you can get out? No. And, um, and um, I would say you would have to change a lot of scripture and rewrite a lot of scripture to make that case. And um, so I can say no with, with uh, a passion to say that in those, in those, in those, in those cases. Yeah, Mike, along those same lines, um, after a person dies, um, is there a point to keep praying for them? Um, it's a um, good question, great question. Um, I would say, I'm trying to see if I should soften this or not, or just say no. <laughs> you know, I'm try, trying to you know, guide, my, guide my words. Um, in, in regards to that, I think it is um, um, great to feel for them. It is great to uh, hurt for them. I don't think that I don't think that's 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 natural. How could we How could we not? Um, if our prayers is Oh God, I'm, I, you can say Have mercy on them, but that would be a prayer for you. I mean, just in a sense that God, this is hard. This is difficult. Um, as I think back, um, but it's not going to do that. Prayer is not going to do anything for them. Um, because God is very, very clear that the, the, door is cl- the door is closed. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time that we can choose a God that's over all other gods and, um, and those things. So, and um, yeah, was, we'll do this the last question. In this case, um, or in this scenario that we were just talking about, it would be more important to pray for the family and close friends of the one who died yeah. than, than for the person. Because yeah. God's already, or he's already made the decision whether yeah. he's going to heaven or hell. Yeah. And I would almost say, um, I'm not saying that that was incorrect, but I just I want to say that we get to make the decision, which is interesting. God doesn't make the decision we get to make a decision. And the decision is right in front of our eyes, right in front of our face, and we get to make that choice because of what Christ has done for us. I wasn't disagreeing with what you said, yeah. but just to be able to say that, you know. <laughs> no. It is something that is always said that, you know, God makes a decision. God is the one that makes, you know, those decisions. And, uh, and I believe that we really get to make a decision. Now we're talking about, you know, Calvinism and all those things, but you know what? In our human minds, God makes, we get to make, there's a decision that's made. Yeah.